Uh, turning in today to Isaiah 52 and the last verse uh, of this chapter, which is the, the first uh, stanza, part of the first stanza of the great song that goes on into chapter 53. Perhaps you can remember sitting beside a glass-like pond, lake or loch, and throwing in a stone. One reason that experience is so enjoyable and memorable for you is the magical effect produced by the small hard object on the smooth surface of the water. That striking and attractive transformation of the calm surface being disturbed for a moment and then slowly returning to its smooth appearance has made us repeat the action again and again. The effect of the stone entering the water is two-dimensional, isn't it? There is an upward dimension to this action. Splash is sent upwards. The bigger the stone and the higher the height from which it falls, the bigger the splash will be. The other dimension to this action is the ripples on the water surface that are sent outwards. Ripple after ripple can be seen. And of the two effects of the stone entering the water, it is the outward effect that interests us most. The splash is over in a moment, but the ripples continue. The splash is one effect, the ripples are many effects. And over the centuries, thinkers and philosophers and theologians and ethicists have used this phenomenon of nature, the ripples, to be a metaphor describing the effect of our actions on others. Our actions have an effect on other people for good or for bad. The anger outburst, the bad tackle, the smile, the encouraging word not only affects those who initially witness the action, but also many others who hear about the action. Secular wisdom mentions this. For example, one writer says, just as ripples spread out when a single pebble is dropped into the water, the actions of individuals can have a far-reaching effect. In Christian thinking, the publication of Christian biographies is meant to impact us by the example of others. For example, the dedication to prayer by John Welsh, the son-in-law of John Knox, Minister in Selkirk, Ayr, Kirkwood Bright, challenges our prayer lives. His actions were witnessed by few, sometimes by none. His wife would wake at two in the morning and hear him praying in another room. A friar who lodged with him one night woke to hear him praying and thought he was speaking to the devil, but was converted through that experience. The account of the life of John Welsh challenges us today. And so the death of the Lord Jesus, described in Isaiah 52 and 53, was like a mighty splash of a large stone entering the water. It grabbed the attention of the people of the time. We've already studied verse 14 which notes the impact of the sufferings of Jesus 
outside Jerusalem in AD 30 and those who witnessed them, the verse says, many were astonished at you. But here in verse 15, we move on to consider the ripples of Christ's atonement and work. The impact of his work which stretched beyond the Jews in verse 14 to the Gentiles in verse 15. Every leader wants to leave a lasting impression from their rule. They want to leave their mark on their country to be associated with some important achievement, some key change or legislation. We can see Rishi Sunak doing this now, bringing in legislation to leave his imprint on the country, whether that is with regard to immigration, lower taxes, or help for those on universal credit. And so we are considering one aspect of the impact of the work of the Lord Jesus on the world, described in this single verse. Think first of all of the object of his influence, the nature of his influence, the cause of his influence, and fourthly, the fulfillment of his influence. Firstly, the object of the influence of God's servant. The verse says, the object of his influence is kings. Kings. The object of the influence of God's servant is kings. The servant of God will influence kings. There's a clear and deliberate contrast in this verse between the servant, the lowly servant, the oppressed servant, and the kings. The contrast is between the highest, the wealthiest, the most powerful people in the world, and the lowly servant. Then the normal course of things in our society, or any society, and certainly in palaces and castles, servants take notice of, are influenced by kings. Servants are sustained, protected, and directed by their kings. Servants study kings, know kings, respect kings and queens, obey them, follow them, serve them. But here, the very opposite relation exists. The servant influences the kings. Kings are here found interested in and studying the actions of the lowly servant. Servants of kings are usually grey people, background staff, office workers, lower administrators. They're often unnoticed by the press and unknown by name on the very edges of the machinery of every kingdom. But this servant of the Lord is famous and influential. Kings are interested in other kings, princes, queens, princesses, heads of state, lords, ladies, generals, as Emperor Napoleon was. He was interested in the head of Russia, of Austria, of Great Britain. So this assertion is arresting, it's unusual, it stops us and makes us look closer, it's extraordinary. 
But it's in relation that's already been spoken of in the Old Testament 200 years before. In Psalm 72 verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all the kings shall bow down before him. Even in the very book of Isaiah, in chapter 49, verse 7, we read the same idea. Kings shall see him and rise up. Princes also shall worship him. The servant will not just be an influence on other servants, as Joseph was in prison on the butler and the baker. This servant will be an influence on kings. Gentile kings. His influence will stretch beyond the narrow confines of Palestine. It will be global. Kings shall hear and see. Joseph the prisoner influenced Pharaoh. Daniel the captive influenced the king of Babylon. The maid in Naaman's house influenced the great commander. And here the servant, the lowly servant of God, will influence kings. We don't have to be great friends to be an influence for good. We don't have to be an elder, a minister, a manager, or an MP. God's way is often, as we were singing in Psalm 8, that the humble are an influence for good. Peter the fisherman was such an influence in his life and still today in his letters. David the shepherd still affects many through his psalms. Joseph the prisoner affected the whole world and the nation of Israel. Amos the herdsman was a powerful prophet for God. God does not need us to be chief executives or company directors to be an influence for good. He doesn't need us to be the smartest in our class, boys and girls, the most attractive in our school, young people, or the most handsome in our community. The common trait of these humble people who had a lasting influence is that they trusted God, they followed God, they served God. To his disciples and to us, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You can be a great influence to others in your class, in your street, in your workplace. The object of the servant's influence. Secondly, the nature of his influence. What is this influence that he has on these kings? And it's set out for us in our verse. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. It's a striking phrase, as as all the phrases in this great servant song are. This phrase is contrasted with a later phrase in the servant song but a phrase which historically in the life of Jesus precedes this one. Chapter 53, verse 7 reads, Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That phrase in chapter 53, verse 7 refers to Jesus being silent in his humiliation. He did not keep on defending himself against the false accusations made by the Jews against him. When he was before Pilate and Herod, they marveled at his silence. 
We read in the Gospels, in the trials of Jesus, that he answered them nothing. That was then. That was here. That was when Jesus was a prisoner, a suffering servant. That was a silence of which Jesus was the subject. In that moment, kings were allowed to control him, to try him, to beat him, to mock him, to crucify him. But the context of verse 15 is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. Now today, the tables are turned. Now he is not silent before kings and rulers, but kings and rulers are silent before him. I think we're to take the silence in this verse in a positive sense. The kings in this prophecy are deeply moved. It's not in a repulsive sense that they are silenced as in verse 14, but in a respectful way. They're stunned, they're silenced, they're mesmerized at the influence of the humble Jesus of Nazareth. They're awed, they're amazed. They've all got kingdoms, but their kingdoms are visible and fragile. But his kingdom is universal and growing and advancing. E.J. Young comments, closing the mouth signifies speechless astonishment, a sign of awe and honor. Those in verse 14 were Jews who were stunned and silenced by the gruesome sight of a grotesquely deformed human frame. But the silence in verse 15 is different. Gentile rulers silenced by the glory and power of the servant. Do you remember the response of the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament to the wisdom and splendor of Solomon? The Bible says there was no more spirits in her. She was silenced by the awesomeness of Solomon. The Apostle John on the island of Patmos writes that when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, he fell at his feet as dead. Silence. The Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate captures this idea in his famous last words. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. As he saw Christianity spread through the Roman Empire, putting out the darkness of paganism, the emperor conceded that the seemingly weak, insignificant, peripheral, pale Galilean Jesus had conquered. And he was silenced. This is the proper response as we come to communion, to the ascension and glorification of the Lord Jesus. Our hearts are to be filled with awe, honor, esteem, wonder, respect, admiration and veneration at he who is and and at all that he's doing. Let us pray that we will feel this way about the Lord Jesus That this story, that this chapter will leave us silenced. That we will be awed by the display of the love and glory of the experience of God's servant. Think about the time when you were last awed by something. Something that just took your breath and your words away. Was it a magnificent building? 
Was it a mountaintop view? Was it a scintillating piece of music? And you were left breathless and awe and speechless at the end of what you saw or heard. We need to be awed by Jesus. Familiarity with the gospel story can leave us assured, but not awed. Happy, but not humbled. Singing, but not silenced. Rejoicing, but not respecting. Let us ponder and study the glory and grace of Jesus till we get to the point where we bow in prayer and find that we cannot speak. Those are moments of true worship. It happened to me unexpectedly, if I allow this personal anecdote, at the end of the Bible class the other week, we'd been discussing, and this is the enriching thing of discussing doctrine with God's people, the, the heightened impact it has on us. We'd been discussing in our Bible class the infinity of God, and then I tried to close in prayer and as I closed my eyes, with, with all this going on in my mind and heart, I was really struggling for words. The magnitude of the infinity of God just bearing down on us all in that moment just takes our words away. We need to experience that more and more. And here are the kings, they shut their mouths because of him in admiration. In awe, in amazement, in worship. Thirdly, the cause of his influence. The cause of the influence is identified in the verse. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. What caused their silence, their awe, their wonder, this deep respect, the admiration among these Gentile rulers? It is that they're hearing and believing the gospel. They were pagan kings, brought up in the religions of their land. They had many gods and many superheroes in their folklore. They had learned of Zeus and Olympus and Baal, but had always taken those tales with a pinch of salt. But now, reports of one Jesus of Nazareth were filtering into their courts. He was being talked about in the markets of their villages and in the ranks of their armies. A miracle worker, a perfect man, a wise teacher, claiming to be the very Son of God, crucified but resurrected on the third day. They'd never encountered anyone quite like Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and raised again, ascended and ruling. No legend they had heard. No fable that they had spoken. No myth that they had understood came close to the historical reality of this superman. Eyewitness after eyewitness could be called to describe the life and the death of Jesus, his resurrection. It was being proclaimed among the nations. And these kings, no students of the Old Testament, educated in their pagan philosophies, they'd never heard this, the text says, verse 15. They'd never heard this. But now they hear. They'd never been, never heard. It had never been told them. But now they hear. Paul in Rome and Spain, Matthew in India, Andrew to Scotland, nations and kings hearing the message of the gospel. 
These kings are sending for these ambassadors to tell them more. They want to hear from Patrick and from Polycarp and from John Chrysostom. And as they hear, the Spirit works in their hearts and they believe. They see the gospel. They see its truth, its value, its relevance. They understand its meaning and importance. Accompanying the preaching, the work of the Spirit in their hearts. These kings who were silent in all are now believing. It's wonderful to read of Patrick's influence in Ireland, isn't it? His encounters with pagan leaders and chieftains, hunted by them, and yet some of them believing the gospel that he proclaimed. And so you and I should take those opportunities to share the gospel. These kings seemed unlikely converts. They were opinionated. They were busy. They were wealthy. But they listened. They heard. They understood. They saw savingly the gospel of Christ. And we can look at people and think they'll never believe. They're of another religion. They're atheistic. They're my boss. They're a young person. They're from an odd Christian home. But this text encourages us that those who perhaps in our view are unlikely to believe by God's spirit will understand and see the truth. Then lastly, the fulfillment of his influence. This verse is quoted in Romans chapter 15 and verse 21. And here's the context of that quotation. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, Paul writes, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This quotation clarifies two things. One is what the kings heard. The inclusion of the words in Romans 15, 21, of him, not in Isaiah 52, verse 15, identifies Jesus as the subject of the message. The quotation also indicates that kings means more than heads of state, but includes their nation as well. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's plotting his mission field. Where will he go with the gospel? Whom will he target? In what region will he spend his efforts, his time, his energy, his gifts? What guides him here is not special revelation, not a voice from heaven, but sanctified human reason. He will go with the gospel where there is no witness already. Those who have not heard those to whom it has not been spoken to. This then is a missionary verse which focuses on those who have not yet heard the gospel. The question is sometimes asked by us, do people deserve to hear the gospel twice when many have never heard it once? Paul delays his visit to Rome and the church in Rome because there were many other people who had never yet heard the gospel. This was a desire of Jim Elliot in South America, wasn't it? 
This was the vision of Hudson Taylor in China and of David Livingston in Africa. Pioneer missionaries going to peoples who had never yet heard the gospel. Nursing home ministry in our town, I think, is important because in some of those care homes, we are the only people that have a church service. As we think of our town, the needs of our town, what a question this is. The ministries that we're involved in as a congregation, are there groups of people that that we need to, to reach out to who have not yet heard the gospel? This is a wonderful prophecy, isn't it? It's not been fulfilled today in the UK. Today, the church perhaps is the silent one, and the rulers are full of words. But here, this prophecy depicts a time when the church will be vocal and the rulers will be silent in amazement and in faith. 